We have a lot to be thankful for, don't we? Uh, we look back on what Christ has done. We look into the future, uh, His promise of heaven and a relationship with Him. Just great stuff, and we need to be focused on that. And then here we are, Thanksgiving this week already. Did that sneak up on anybody else? Wow, it seemed like, wow, we were just in the summer, and now it's Thanksgiving. It just, just blasts away. It's just amazing how, how fast time seems to, to fly, and uh, just Thanksgiving. And by the way, when you're celebrating Thanksgiving, remember who we are to be thankful to. It's not just that we're thankful. We're thankful to God. That's what Thanksgiving is all about. Right now, we are in a series, and uh, we, just like Thanksgiving kind of sneaks up on us, that's really what Scripture says that's going to happen with the second coming of Christ. I mean, we know it's out there. It's on the calendar somewhere. We don't know where on the calendar, but Thanksgiving we always know, and that still catches us by surprise. And so when He comes, and we don't have it marked, it'll always catch us by surprise. Jesus says He'll come like a thief in the night. It'll be sudden. It'll be unexpected. And that's what we have as believers to look forward to. And we're in a series called Living in the Light of His Return. So Living in the Light of His Return is all about two books of the Bible that Paul writes to a church in Thessalonica, which is in modern-day Greece. And he he swoops in, he, he has a missionary journey, he leads some people to Christ, some Jewish people and some non-Jewish, which are called Gentile people, leads them to Christ. He leaves, persecution breaks out, that's why they actually get him out of there. And some things happen, he's wondering how they're doing, and he sends a letter by Timothy to find out. And he answers some of their questions. And one of their questions was, which is, if you just stop for a moment, it's kind of remarkable. Paul might have only been there about three weeks, and part of what he taught these brand new believers was prophecy. And so some people think, well, why are you talking about prophecy? I mean, it seems like that should be a little different. That should be reserved, you know, maybe for a class or something like. Here, Paul's, Paul's got that in the first three weeks of them being a believer he's teaching about that. Because of that teaching, though, they had some questions. First, some people had died in their congregation, and then they knew that this event called the rapture was going to happen. We already talked about that. And because that was going to happen, talked about that two weeks ago, that uh, they thought, well, how's that going to impact them? It seems like they're going to miss this event. And Paul writes the first letter to answer that question. And now, after the first letter, they have some more questions about end times, and it's basically about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord includes, begins with this seven-year period of tribulation, and because some of them, they've been experiencing persecution since they become believers, and as the persecution intensifies... They start wondering, is this the day of the Lord? Then they hear something. They hear rumors that this is the day of the Lord. And so they're asking Paul, and Paul is answering this question. And he does that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the second letter he writes to them, answering more questions. And here's, here's what it says. I think this is on page 1185 or something like that, if you're using one of our, our Bibles on the back of the chair rack there. He says... Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ 
and are gathering together to him. That you do not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So that's what he's talking about. He's saying, hey, don't lose your cool. Don't be accept. Don't be frightened. Hey, don't, don't, don't panic. Don't freak out. If you heard or somebody acted like the day of the Lord has come. And he's basically then going to give them some reason. He's calming them and he's saying, hey, we're, they're asking, are we in the tribulation time? He's basically going to tell them no, but he's going to do that in these next few verses. And then I'm going to sort of structure these next few verses with four questions that he's answering four questions that are a little more detailed about the day of the Lord and then this main character that's in the day of the Lord called the Antichrist. So first question is this, what happens to begin the day of the Lord? Well, we learned a couple of weeks ago that the first event that we'll notice as believers, as Christian people in the whole world will we'll notice something's going on, is there's this event called the rapture, this catching away of believers where God takes true believers out of the world, snatches them up. Some of you have seen the movie, you know how that is. An event called the rapture. The rapture, that word is not in the Bible, but it's just a Latin translation for the word caught up to be with Christ. And so we talked about that. If you don't know about that, you could go listen to what we talked about a couple weeks ago. And so that happens first, and then the day of the Lord happens. So what has to happen before the day of the Lord? Well, he's already told him that, but here now, starting in verse 3, he's going to tell him two more things. One is this, the, that the apostasy comes first. So let's continue reading in verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, meaning the day of the Lord, specifically that seven years of tribulation, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And now scholars debate, there's different views on this. To me, the two best views of this uh, I'll throw out to you. Some scholars say that the secondary meaning of apostasy. Apostasy means that you fall away from the truth or you reject the truth. But there's a secondary meaning for apostasy that means departure. And it can be used, you depart from the truth. But when you look at it as a departure, some people believe that he's actually referring to what I just mentioned, this departure of the church from the earth, that that's, that has to happen first. And instead of apostasy there, you'd translate it, the departure has to happen first. But then other people push back with another view saying, well, actually, uh, the, the snatching away is not something we do. It's really something God does. And so most scholars then land that the apostasy is a turning away from the truth, the way we would normally take that word. And so, and specifically, the way we would flesh that out is that People who say they're believers reject biblical truth. And, so, and because people can't lose their salvation, we know that's professing Christians who aren't actually believers who turn away from true doctrine. And by the way, we see that all the time right now. There are a bunch of churches, maybe, well, most churches, most churches in our country have left the gospel, the main teaching of the Bible. 
because they've gone soft on sin. So people don't want to say that this behavior is sinful, and well now, you get rid of sin, well then why did Jesus have to die and take our punishment? Our punishment for what? The gospel doesn't make any sense if there's no right and wrong, if there's no morality, if there's no sin against God when we're immoral. So without sin, you don't have the gospel. That's why so many churches today, the majority of churches today, do not preach the gospel. The gospel is simply the good news that although we're all sinners and we've all sinned and rebelled against God and we all deserve hell, separation from God forever because he's perfectly righteous, that because all of us have sinned against him, that's what we deserve. But the good news is that Jesus came clothed himself in human form, lived a perfect life without sin, and then voluntarily gave up his life. He died for us, paying our penalty for sin, so God, without violating his own character of justice, can grant forgiveness because our sin has been paid for, but he can forgive us, and then we can be with him forever because we trade our sin for Christ's righteousness, Scripture says, and then we are righteous before God when we place our trust in Christ and Christ alone. So that good news, you don't hear that preached as much. That's a departure from the faith. But the easiest way, and so the apostasy seems to be, because we see this kind of thing happening all the time, the question is, what is the apostasy? And then that may be some bigger event where everybody uh, is going, wow, okay, this is a major shift away from the gospel that happens in latter times. But that's going to be a little tougher to see, maybe. Some people say that happens at the midpoint of the tribulation. I, don't, I think that's a little late. But, uh, but here's what we can see, the other thing. Because he continues in verse 3, he says, we, that's not going to happen. The day of the Lord's not coming until the apostasy. And this. Okay, look at verse 3 as we continue. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as God. So who's the man of lawlessness? The Antichrist, right? So he's saying, Paul's telling them, the day of the Lord's not coming. The seven years isn't coming until the Antichrist has been revealed. The Antichrist has been revealed. That's how, so we will know exactly who the Antichrist is. And by the way, this term Antichrist, you know, anti means against, right? Instead of. The Antichrist comes, although he tries to mimic Jesus, he actually stands for the opposite of Jesus. For example, it just described him wanting to exalt himself. But remember when Jesus came the first time in Philippians 2.6, it's described this way. Who, talking about Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So for Jesus, we have this continual humbling. He's God, he exists eternity, for eternity 
in Trinity with God in fellowship, and then he comes to earth, clothes himself in humanity, huge humbling there. And then he comes as a servant, humbling there. And then he comes even to die, further humbles himself, and then not just to die, but to die by torture on the cross, further humbling himself, where we have the Antichrist exalting himself in every way. So if the man of lawlessness being revealed begins the day of the Lord, well, then the next question is, how will we recognize the man of lawlessness? How will we recognize this guy? And Scripture tells us that we can recognize him. Now, Scripture uses a lot of different names to describe the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist or the son of destruction or the beast is what he's called in Revelation, or the ruler or prince to come, he's called in Daniel, or the the worthless shepherd, the foolish and worthless shepherd, he's called in Zechariah. I mean, all these terms are really describing the character of the Antichrist. But the way that we recognize him is by what the man of lawlessness does. He takes an action that's unmistakable that we know this is the guy. Even we might not think he's the guy. We may think, no, it can't be him. He's such a nice guy. But when he does this, we know. And so here's how that goes. First, and he does a series of things. The first thing that begins all this, as recorded for us by Daniel, is that he signs a peace treaty with the nation of Israel signs a peace treaty for the nation of Israel for seven years. So when a, when a world ruler shows up on the scene and he signs a seven-year covenant, seven-year peace with Israel, look out. Through his strength, he brings peace to the most contentious area of the world today. But what happens is three and a half years into it, he violates his own peace treaty. So in Daniel chapter 9 in the Old Testament, that was written 600 years before Jesus. And and some people say, well, some of this came true before Jesus, but that's not true because then Jesus, like in Matthew 24, 25, looks back and says, he's saying, hey, you want to know what's going to happen? This Antichrist guy is going to come. He's going to do some things like Daniel told us he was going to do. So that's how that goes. And here's what Daniel said, talking about the Antichrist, Daniel 9, 27. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So that's all talking about the Antichrist. So if you read the context of Daniel 9, it makes that very clear. Daniel 9 keeps talking about, Daniel's all about when's Jesus coming. And then he has these 70 weeks or 70 periods of seven years. He said seven of them are going to happen and then 62 of them are going to happen and those went together. And then that's when Messiah is going to come. That You could have logged that down to the year that Jesus entered Jerusalem 
as Messiah. So you could be a Jewish person and just count the years and know. And that's why there was so much messianic fervor at the time of Christ. But then he said there's going to be a 70th, 77-year period, a 70th week, which just means seven, a 70th seven-year time frame. That has not happened yet. And that will not happen until the Antichrist comes. And so here's a little bit more about, as we piece together what Scripture says. He's going to be charismatic. People are going to follow him. He's going to be smooth-talking. He's going to be a political leader. He's going to arise out of a ten-nation federation that we think is in the Western world or could come out of the European Economic Union. The reason we're saying that is because it's the revived Roman Empire as described in detail in Daniel. So that's all going to happen. And the way that happens is there's these 10 leaders who come together to form a coalition. Somehow this man of lawlessness subdues three of them or conquers three of them. And then after he conquers three of them, the other seven say, okay, you win, we're with you. And so he leads this 10-nation federation. And I think people turn to him because they think they can lead him to safety or lead the world out of chaos or whatever the new problem the world has. Third, and this is kind of freaky, he will be able to do signs and wonders, things that look supernatural, which will cause more people to want to follow him. He'll do things and everybody will say, nobody can do that. How can he do that? And like in Revelation, they'll say, who is like the beast? Who can pull that off? So they'll be saying that. Key is as he gets into these seven years, after he makes this peace treaty, he actually demands to be worshipped. He will oppose God and demand to be worshipped. Three and a half years in, we know from Scripture there is a temple in Jerusalem which is very problematic right now. Remember, this is written that all this was going to happen, that in these seven years there would be a temple. But remember, until night from the first century, A.D. 70, until World War II, after World War II, 1948, there was no Israel, right? The, the nation of Israel did not exist. After World War II, Israel became a nation in 1948, but they didn't control Jerusalem until 1968. So they had some space there, but, but the Palestinians still controlled Jerusalem. And then they kept being attacked by the nations surrounding them. And every time that happened, they pretty much gained land for their country. And so they finally, in 68, when they were attacked, the Six-Day War, they actually got Jerusalem. And so all this stuff that Daniel's writing about, God says this is about my people, and he's talking about the Jewish people because Daniel knows everybody's in exile. What's going to happen? What's going to happen in the future to your people? He says, we're going to have these 70 weeks. But what wasn't seen is this gap between the 69th and the 70th. And then during this time is the church age that happens. And we don't know how long that's in. But when that's over, it's all back to this last seven years. And it's all about Israel and Jerusalem. That's what we know. In the middle of the seven years, there's a temple. We think that could have something to do with the peace treaty that was signed three and a half years before. Right now, 
Orthodox Jews can't practice their religion according to the Bible because they're supposed to make sacrifices at the temple. But since AD 70, they have not had a temple. And so you can go to Jerusalem today and look at all the artifacts that they've made, that they've reproduced for the new temple, the third temple that hasn't been built yet. So when they have a chance to build it, they will build it quickly because they have everything assembled to be able to do that. It could be that this seven-year peace deal has something to do with Israel being able to build the temple on the Temple Mount. And remember, Israel controls Jerusalem now, but they allow Muslim people, Palestinians, to control the Temple Mount within Jerusalem. And so, but in the midpoint, there's a temple and the Antichrist walks into the temple brazenly into the Holy of Holies and he declares himself God and then all of a sudden the peace treaty is broken and the Jewish people in Israel now revolt against the Antichrist. So all that happens. By the way, we don't feel the tension on the Temple Mount. If you lived in Israel, you would. For example, I just Googled it up today. Hey, Temple Mount, what's going on? Today, four people were shot at the entrance to the temple. A Palestinian shot four Jewish people, two civilians and two police officers at the entrance to the Temple Mount. The Jewish people have access to the temple, and, but the Muslim people don't like that. And so four people were shot, one died, three are in the hospital, and then Hamas, the, the terrorist group, say, yay, 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 good job, he's a hero. Oh, we didn't send him. You know, it's that kind of thing, so they can't be retaliated against. That just happened today. Stuff like that happens all the time. We're blind to it, we're callous to it. There's tension every day at the temple. We just don't hear about it. Then the Antichrist in his career, is joined by a religious leader. He's a political leader. He's joined by a religious leader that's called the false prophet in Revelation. He starts also promoting the Antichrist as God. And so that, that happens. And then the Antichrist, and, and some of this is through the false prophet, they start killing people who refuse to worship the Antichrist, the beast, as, it's, as he's called in Revelation. Then, as this tension mounts and people are being killed, he'll control commerce over the entire world. He'll control all financial transactions. And he'll do that through electronic currency. He'll do that with, uh, you won't be able to make a transaction unless you have the mark on your right hand, or your forehead. That's the only, you know, the, the vaccines are not the mark of the beast, all right? You know, yeah, it's, it's the back of the hand or the forehead. You receive a mark, and only with that mark can you buy and sell. And that was once really hard to imagine. But now we can see easily how a world government can mandate this is the way it is. You have to have this, or you cannot buy or sell, and you will be persecuted. Here's where that comes from, Revelation 13, verse 16. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, this is the Antichrist, the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or their forehead, 
And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name, which the number is 666, right? So this is how far this advanced. And if you're young here, young people, we used to use, when we bought things, we used to use something called cash. It was like paper. And we had like pull it out of our pockets and unfold it. And we had give it to somebody. And that would actually had a value. And people, we could buy stuff with it. You know, but young people don't use cash anymore, right? It's all credit card or debit card. And, you know, it used to be you slid it. Now you just punch it in there. Or now you just tap it or just, you know, just wave it, you know, and it's done. Well, well. As that takes over, how easy it is to control all commerce. You got a bunch of cash in your mattress? That don't work anymore. You have a bunch of cash in your you know, safety deposit box? Gold, diamonds, what, that doesn't work anymore. It's electronic transactions only. A cashless society. We're moving to that right now. By the way, what's the problem with that? The problem is, it's way more convenient. You know, cash, why did we come up with cash? Because it's way easier than grabbing the chicken from our backyard and hauling that down to downtown Fremont and trading that for something else that we need, right? So we got cash. It works better. Well, now electronic currency is much more convenient than cash. The only problem with that is, oh, what if you don't have your card? What if you were swimming and you didn't bring your card? Or, Well, now to overcome that, because now it's all down to a little chip that's on the end of your credit card. Now, in places like Sweden and Germany, thousands of people have received a chip that's implanted into their skin, into their hand. It's the size of a, of a grain of rice. They slip it in there, and that allows them to do the same transactions as a credit card. Not only that, it has their ID information on it. So you want to know who I am? I don't need to carry my ID. You just have the ID reader, you know, and it just tells you who I am. And they also have it where you can just swipe your hand and it unlocks doors. Because you know how we have the little cards that unlock doors? Well, that can be on there. All this stuff, and you're not, you don't have to carry anything. And it's enlarged in you because a credit card can be stolen by somebody. But this is implanted into your hand. This has already happened. I'm not saying countrywide, but thousands of people, I think last I heard, 4,000 people in Sweden have received this implant in their hand. A couple of thousand people in Germany have received an implant. It's just a convenient way to buy and sell. Well, now all of a sudden, where we could not really understand before, how is somebody going to control all commerce? How would that even happen? Now in history, we're looking around going, oh, that could very easily happen. It's just mandated that you have to have an implant. And there it is, all your information. Now, what's the one downside with that? What's the one problem with this convenience? Well, the only problem with this convenience is not everybody has a right hand. Some people have lost their right hand. Okay, so then what? If no right hand, then your forehead. Pretty much everybody has a forehead. So it's that or that. And so then everybody, so it's mandated, can't get out of it. 
And that's the way that all breaks out. So I think the mark could be a chip. All we know is it's something on your hand, if not your hand, your forehead. Now, the Antichrist will also gather. So when he sets himself in the temple, there's a revolt by Israel. So now we're back to warfare. Seems like they kind of kick him out. And now he gathers the nations to come to fight Israel. In my office, I have, uh, having been in Israel, I've been on Medigo, which is just a tell where, where Solomon had some fortresses kind of on the outskirts of, of the nation. Well, Medigo has a huge plain, Medigo, and then Har Medigo. That is the place where these armies will stage as they invade Israel to conquer Jerusalem. And so the Antichrist is heading all that, what we call Armageddon. But then he'll be overthrown, and that happens at the very second coming of Christ, when Christ doesn't just come into, into the clouds, but he comes all the way to earth. Scripture teaches us that he'll land on the Mount of Olives, which is where he ascended from, that that mount will split in two, and he will defeat his enemies. And I'll give you that language, because here we're going to jump ahead uh, a verse showing that before we come back to where we were in the text. 2 Thessalonians 2, jumping ahead to verse 8, it says, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So this guy comes, you know, is brought to an end by Christ. And, you know, we, we feel like there's this is huge world struggle, and all these countries are coming to fight each other, and they're going to have it out, and all this is happening. And then Jesus comes, and it's just like this. Done. Done. Because the Antichrist nor Satan can stand in the presence of Jesus. So if we know how to recognize him, then maybe a third question would be, well, why hasn't that happened yet? And so we looked at one dynamic of that as we know that, well, God's waiting so that not all will perish and some more will come to repentance. But there's actually another reason that he lets us know about as we work through uh, the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians. We left off at verse 4, so now we're going to go to verse 5. And this is, he's saying that why this hasn't come yet is because of the restrainer. And the question is that he answers is, who is the restrainer? So let's look at that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Do you not remember that while I was with you, while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, what restrains the Antichrist he's talking about, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, did you notice he's talking about some restraining force that's keeping the Antichrist from coming? And he starts off saying a, it's a what, but then he says it's a who and a he. So what's a what and a who and a he? Well, the what, we believe, is the church, which has been removed at the rapture. So that all kind of makes sense. It's the reversal of Pentecost. When Jesus left, he was crucified died, buried, three days in the tomb, resurrected, taught for another 40 days, ascended to heaven. 
And after that, he said, wait for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and empowered the church. And the church has been empowered to go all over the world in every country of the world since that time. But there's a time coming where the church will be removed. And then, but, but the church doesn't actually restrain Satan. God restrains Satan. But it's God represented by the Holy Spirit that is represented by believers in the church. That's the what that's removed. The church is removed. A reversal of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is not in believers like he was before as the church was expanding during the church age. And then the who is the Holy Spirit. It's the he. So it's the what, the church, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and it's only the Holy Spirit that can hold back. Now, this does not mean that the Holy Spirit is not present on earth anymore. The reason is God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. So God can't not be somewhere. But it's back to like it was with Israel before the church, a reversal of Pentecost, where now that's, that's not there like that anymore, where he comes and indwells all believers. That changes. Those believers are gone, and then all of a sudden the world is in a tailspin without that restraining influence, which is primarily the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? All right. That was weak. Very weak. All right. So next question, last question. Because we think, okay, if all this happens, and we've already been told this is going to happen, then everybody who's ever heard this is going to believe when it happens, even if they don't believe now. Do you think like that? That's the way I think. Anybody think like that? Nobody. All right, I'm the only one. All right. So the last question is why it'll be hard for people to turn to Jesus during the tribulation. So here's the setup. If the rapture happened today... Let's say right now. Let's say in the next minute, which pretty much won't happen because I just said that. But let's say it because we don't know. But it's going to be the next minute. You do realize that some people will still be sitting here, right? We're not assuming everybody here is a true believer. And those people sitting here, we think, are, they're going to think, whoa! This is freaking me out. This just happened. And then they go around that nobody, you know, they're gone. Did I fall asleep? What happened? And then they realize, no, everybody's gone. And then they think, this is what Kevin was just talking about two weeks ago. I'm in. I missed it. I've been hedging my bet. I've been just kind of playing church. I come to church, but, you know, I never really gave my life to Christ because there's some things I didn't want to change in my life. But now I know And so we think all these people will come to Christ. The Bible's actually saying that's not going to happen that way. And here's where it says it in the next verse. Verse 8. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. I had read that kind of out of order earlier. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders, describing the Antichrist. Verse 10. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth as so to be saved. 
He's saying people are going to perish who heard God's message of love and salvation, the gospel, but they perish anyway. And so why will it, and and it, it gets more pointed as we continue, but before we get there, and why will it be more difficult to follow Jesus after the tribulation? Well, there's some things we know that's going to happen. For example, the Antichrist has power and signs and false wonder. He's doing amazing things where people are going to go, well, he's just like Jesus. He can do stuff that Jesus did. He's the second coming of Jesus. And a lot of, there'll be rumors, this is Jesus. This is the, he's come in the name of Jesus. This is the likeness of Jesus. By the way, Jesus said in his first coming, don't go there. He's saying, people are going to say Christ has come. Don't believe him. When I come back, the sky will split open. Everybody will know. Nobody will be wondering. So we never have to sit around and try to figure out, hey, is this guy Jesus? By the way, there are religious leaders in our world today with millions of followers who say, I'm the reincarnated Christ. That's what the Moonies and other groups are all about. Don't believe it. So the Antichrist comes with power, signs, false wonders, people believe. And people will be killed for not worshiping the Antichrist. So there's going to be a lot of pressure. And I think we have this false sense of security in America because we haven't experienced religious persecution that bad yet, you know, where people are killed. But realize this happens every day in our world. Every day in countries all around the world, Christians are killed for being Christians. Many countries today, for example, in Myanmar, where we've sent a lot of money to help Christians who have been blown out of their villages. You've helped them by giving them rice and temporary shelter, helping them figure out how to get back on their feet. But other places like North Korea, Afghanistan, China, where they routinely destroy churches, Libya, Pakistan, Yemen, Iran, India, Central African Republic, Democratic Republic of the Congo, another African country, and Nigeria. Nigeria is one of the worst. And here's what just happened this year. Nigeria was just this year removed from the list of the top religious freedom violators around the world. They have just been taken off that list, yet this year they lead the world in the most Christian deaths with 3,530 martyrs this year. Our government just removed them from the top 10 religious freedom violators. They've killed more Christians than any other country that we know of. That's what's happening today. Don't get callous to that. Don't have a false sense of security that that could never happen here because it will happen around the entire world. And then here's the thing. I'm going to wrap up with this. This is one of the scarier passages. Because if you're kind of on the fence or you don't know where you're standing with Christ and you're kind of hedging your bet and you're thinking, well, you know, as things play out, I'll jump on the the Jesus train then. Here's what he says. Next verse, verse 11. Here's what he's going to tell us. God judges the world. He judges the whole world. That's what these seven years are all about. But he also judges people who previously heard the truth about Jesus and did not respond to Jesus. Check it out, verse 11. 
For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. You hear what he's saying? He's saying people like that would be left sitting here today who weren't all in on Jesus because they thought, well, I have some lifestyle issues or I have some things, you know, I don't want really, to really give my whole life to Jesus because I like these other things. I take pleasure in these things that God says are wrong and I'm not ready to give that up. And so it seems like God knows that and I'm just not all in yet. Oh, and you think when you saw this transpire that you would be all in, but here God's saying, no, don't think that way. Even when you see millions of people disappear, somebody's going to come along with an explanation that you buy into, and you'll believe the lie, and you won't turn to Jesus, even, you, even though somebody told you all this would happen, you saw it with your own eyes. God will judge those who already rejected Jesus with a delusion. That's what he's telling us. That's what he wants us to know. And, and so here's, the, here, here's what I just want to caution you with. You know, if you're here at Grace, maybe you grew up in this church. I don't know. But you never, you're just never all in on Christ. You know, hey, you're okay with Jesus. You believe in Jesus. You intellectually believe everything about Jesus. He lived. He could be the Son of God, all that stuff. But you don't follow Jesus. Your life isn't altered by Jesus, really, hardly at all. I'm afraid you may be this person. Or you grew up in some other religious tradition that, that kind of taught you that, you know, going to church, God really likes that, and so you're good with God if you show up in church. Or if you you know, do this or that or get baptized or what Scripture's telling us is none of that earns salvation for us. As a matter of fact, for us to be truly a Christian, we have to understand there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to even partly contribute to our own salvation. We live in a culture that thinks well, I'm a pretty good person, so God's not going to send me to hell. That wouldn't be right. That's actually wrong. Your reasoning's wrong, and that's, God says that's wrong. Because we're all worse than we think, and I deserve an eternity in hell for my sin. And so do you. And so does Billy Graham and everybody else. That's the way it is. Billy Graham's not with us now. He's in heaven, but whatever. <laughs> if you're sitting here and you're not all in with Jesus, that's my concern for you. And even though you'll be going, wow, that's just what everybody said was going to happen. That's what the Bible says is going to happen. Somebody's going to come along, maybe in the name of Christianity, and they're going to give some other explanation, and that's going to somehow make sense to you and you're going to be judged for rejecting Jesus today. On that day, if you're alive, you'll be judged for rejecting Jesus today. Because every day we're not all in with Jesus is a day that we're rejecting Him. 
Even if we think he's a great guy, you're still rejecting him as your Lord, Savior, and King who died for you. And so I don't want to close the service without giving you an opportunity to come to him. And Scripture says since we don't have to do anything, it's all a gift that we just respond to him in belief and faith. But the Bible's also telling us that if we're sincere in our belief and faith, God will change our lives. We're right to worry that I might want to give up something if I turn to Christ. You don't have to give anything up to turn to Christ. But when you turn to Christ, be prepared for God to come into your life and start rearranging your priorities. That will happen. Let's bow our heads. Salvation is not a prayer. It's a belief, it's faith, it's trust in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, that you believe who He is, the Son of God, that He voluntarily died for your personal sins, and that without Him you have no hope whatsoever of being with a righteous and holy God for eternity. And so it's faith, it's a heart decision that only you and God know about. But Scripture's telling us that we should express that to God. And so let me give you an example of doing that, what we call like a sinner's prayer. Again, it's not a certain number of words. It's your faith, but you can express your faith this way. And you can follow this prayer, pray this prayer, put this prayer into your own words. You can do it silently. You can do it out loud. I don't care. If you've never come to Christ, just do it. Father God in heaven, I understand that I have sinned against you And because of that, you you say, and I believe it, that I deserve to be separated from you forever. And there's nothing I can do to change that. But God, you have allowed your son to come and die on the cross, voluntarily give his life to die for my sins, to pay my sin penalty. And because of that, I can put my faith, my trust, my belief in Christ and Christ alone. And that's what I'm doing right now. I'm putting my trust in Jesus. And God, as I do that, I'm asking you to come into my life and help me to love you back by following you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together before we we close. Um, If you made that decision today, we've got, we just have a little bit of information we want you to have. Right over here, it's kind of hidden by the, by the OCC boxes. Uh, there's a, a little basket that has some packets of information. They're in kind of a, a brown bag. And there's one over here, again, a basket full of those brown bags. We also have them at our room one. Just swing in. If you don't want to talk to anybody, all you have to say is, I need one of those bags. I need that, that stuff. You know, can I have one of those bags? And we'll just give it to you, and you go on, and you can digest it in the comfort of your own home. But we have some information that we want you to have that will help you get started in your relationship with Christ. God, thanks for the day. Thanks for bringing us here together. Father, thank you for your love for us. Lord, thank you that we know the end of the story. We don't have to go out fearful or afraid or worried or concerned or anything like that. We know you're in control and that you love us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'll see you next Sunday. We're going to wrap this up. We're going to talk about the end. Don't miss it. See you then. Who dismissed?